So, so when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. And this he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And Father, we humbly just pause and ask, help us now to continue to worship by offering to you, Lord, our attention, our mind, our heart, our soul, that you might write your will on the fleshly tablet of our hearts through the word of God this morning. You said it's alive and powerful. Make it that for each of us this morning. May we have an ear to hear what your spirit would say. We don't want to hear wiser, persuasive words of a man, Lord. We want to experience a demonstration of your spirit and power speaking something to our hearts. Teach us now, we ask by your spirit, in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, I think failure uh, is probably one of the most unpleasant experiences that we all go through on this earth. Nobody likes to fail, and that for many different reasons, the experiences that come along with it, the shame, the embarrassment, the consequences, the regrets, those kind of things. And probably, I think, however, there is no more miserable experience than spiritual failure. Then when you know you failed before God and you have that sense and that awareness that you failed in some way and the compounding uh, effects and collateral damage that comes along with spiritual failure, the question really is this, is not so much will I fail, but the question really is, is what about after I fail the Lord? Now, we know through Jesus and what he has done for us in the word of God that there is forgiveness available. And I'm thankful for that, that because Jesus died on the cross for my sins, for your sins, we can always go to him, call upon the name of the Lord, be saved from the punishment of our sins. He takes our guilt away and reassures us of his love for him. But what about beyond that? What about restoration? or any possibility of future opportunity after we've failed or bottomed out maybe in some way. Well, this passage addresses that issue, showing that the Lord's heart is for restoration. And his heart is for opportunity, for future usefulness to still be available, given that our heart is right before him in how we've processed the failure. And if we've indeed had a brokenness and a repentance in the midst of our failure before him. Here we see in John 21, this record of the restoration of Peter after a miserable failure in his life. And here we see the Lord restoring Peter. Remember from Peter's life, before Jesus was arrested, 
there was sort of this conversation of that the disciples may fail and fall short and Peter very adamantly denied that he would ever do that but we know what took place on the night Jesus was arrested and led to his painful execution rather than Peter bravely standing up for the Lord and being a committed disciple as he ought to be as a follower without shame instead Peter fell prey to his human weakness and he really caved in under the pressure of the moment and he denied that he even knew the Lord at all. And then to add insult to injury, he failed not once but three times in the same area. And on top of that, he failed publicly before others. Peter failed the Lord. He failed the followers of the Lord. And this led to horrible sorrow in Peter's life. Deep regret and no doubt it brought tremendous shame to him as a man and discouragement. But here God's Spirit chooses to record in the Bible Jesus' restoration of Peter after his failure. And let me add, this is the public restoration of Peter. This isn't just Peter's restoration. This is his public restoration. And what I mean by that is Luke chapter 24 seems to indicate that Jesus has already had a private meeting with Peter alone prior to this occasion here. No doubt where Jesus lovingly and graciously, Jesus never seeks to shame people when they fail. Jesus had already gone to Peter prior to this, the Bible seems to indicate, and no doubt at that moment, in that one-on-one -on -one encounter, Jesus helped him process the failure, the denial. He assured Peter of his loves, of his love, and, and helped him to know there was forgiveness available and opportunity still to serve him, restoring Peter's personal walk with the Lord, giving him encouragement that there was still opportunity to serve the Lord in his life. However, let's be honest with humanity and our understanding of it, perhaps part of the reason for this is maybe we don't know what were the other disciples thinking about Peter as the result of his horrible failure? And it is very well likely, we understand humanity, that the other disciples, knowing of Peter's failure, thought that his great personal failure would be, and maybe even should be, the occasion for Peter being shelved long term. A lot of times that's people's perspective. And perhaps the other disciples were thinking, boy, after what Peter did, no way that guy ever deserves to serve again. No way that guy ever deserves another shot at something or an opportunity or some availability to actually do something in his future. And perhaps that they thought he was no longer usable for the Lord's work. Jesus, always using things for a teaching opportunity, and that's what I love about the Lord, he now restores Peter publicly for the sake of the other disciples, for Peter's encouragement as he wanted him to lead in the early church. And once Peter learned what he needed to and was stabilized, he could now be restored from Jesus' perspective and begin serving again. And Jesus wanted everyone to recognize that. He wanted the other disciples to learn this same thing, to see and accept it for themselves. Now, again, the background, which is important to our setting, remember, as we go into our text, we follow another occasion where Jesus revealed himself to the disciples. The situation happened where, remember, Peter said to the disciples, a group of about seven or so, I'm going fishing. They said, okay, we'll go with you. They go out, they fish all night long, and they catch absolutely nothing. As morning rolls around, they've come up empty-handed. Their efforts resulted in failure. They see someone on the shore. They don't recognize it's Jesus because it's dusk and he's from a distance. And he basically says to them, hey, how did you guys make out 
fishing. Did you catch anything? Did you find what you were looking for? Did you, uh, you know, able to accomplish anything? And they said, no, we came up empty handed. It was an utter failure. And then he says to them that amazing statement. Remember, he says, just cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some fish. And they cast the net there back into the water. And it says that the net was filled with a multitude of fish. And when John saw this, he said, this is the Lord. And he had this flashback. Only Jesus could have done this. There was only a few feet between one side of the boat and the other. And Peter impulsively dives into the water because he realizes I'm out the shore or out to, to sea and Jesus is back on the shore. And that's not a good thing. So he's swimming to get back to the Lord and the other boat comes in and Jesus says as they arrive, come and eat breakfast. And we see Jesus already had for them fish and bread and a fire going and what they went looking for Jesus already had right there for them and he invites them to eat a breakfast and to bring some of what they had caught to that breakfast and to share a time and I'm sure it was just a golden moment of silence as they were learning the lessons again that Jesus wanted them to see and it's after this as they're finishing up their breakfast now verse 15 in our text tells us when they had eaten the breakfast Jesus then said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. So we see what happens is Jesus starts to now ask Peter, this repeated question and after each answer Jesus then gives him an instruction to follow in a way to serve him the searching question it's repetitious we read it is Simon son of Jonah do you love me more than these and let's think about that question first of all notice the momentary name use which is really a name change somewhat from what he's normally called Peter in the gospel accounts Jesus refers to Peter in this moment by his given name. Do you see it there in the text? He says, Simon, son of Jonah. Now, Simon, son of Jonah, that's who Peter was by nature. That was his given name from birth. So it's a representation of who he was in his humanity alone, particularly before he met the Lord Jesus and before the Lord started working in his life. It represents who he is as a man remember jesus changed his name to peter and peter means a stone or the idea is it's a term that means stable or strong and so this is what jesus changed his name to and the reason is because the power of the lord would be able to make peter strong it would be able to make peter stable as the lord worked in his life Yet Peter had recently learned very well that in that brief season as he detached from dependence upon Jesus and he sort of distanced himself from the Lord that in his own strength he had nothing to bring to the table because as he distanced himself from Jesus Peter fell flat on his face and he realized there was no strength in himself he faltered and he stumbled and Satan really shook and sifted him and left him exposed in his sinful weakness. And it's almost now as Jesus calls him Simon once again, he's gently reminding him who he was on his own. 
and who he was in his natural humanity. It's almost as if Jesus is saying to him, Simon, you're just a weak man with many shortcomings. And apart from me, you cannot be Peter. You cannot be strong. You cannot be stable. In fact, apart from me, on your own, there's nothing good that you can do in your humanity and who you are naturally. This sort of reminds me of Paul's words in Romans 7 where Paul says this, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. Here, this is Paul, someone used mightily of the Lord, someone who was such a a strong pillar in the early church. And Paul says of his own life, I know that in me, in me, that is in my flesh, in my humanity, Nothing good dwells. The idea Paul's saying is, is, listen, I tried turning over a new leaf. It was more rotten on the other side than it was on the front side. It wasn't as somehow I just changed myself. Or Paul says, in me, that is in my flesh and nature, there's nothing good there. He says, I find that the will is present with me to want to do good, but the power to perform what's good, he says, I don't find that in myself. It's not in me. He's saying, I can't be a good little Christian boy. I can't be strong for the Lord. In my natural strength, I am weak and frail. And look, that's a sobering, sometimes painful process of self-discovery that we all have to go through. And sometimes it takes some of us a little longer than others to have to go through that process of painful self-discovery. That there's truly nothing of inherent good within us. There's no strength within us. There's no special well within us. And it's so helpful for us to come to realize how weak and, and, and quite honestly shallow we are in our humanity apart from the Lord. And that understanding and discovery is what helps us to avert the pride in our human nature that often leads to failure, which is what Peter did as he became self-confident in his own life. Well, after addressing Peter specifically, in this way as Simon, Jesus then asks him that repeated question. We see it stated multiple times. He says, Simon, do you love me more than these? Now, when he says there, verse 15, do you love me? The term he uses in the original language is agapeo, or where we get that word agape. And the the Greeks had four different words for love, which is helpful because we use the word love today for I love my wife, I love my children, I love prime rib, I love peanut butter, you know, and we, we, use, we use it for everything. And, and so therefore it kind of gets blurred. Well, they had multiple words for love, which I think is quite honestly somewhat helpful. And agapeo was the highest form of love. It was a love that spoke of a love of choice. It wasn't based on the condition of the recipient. It wasn't dependent upon their response. It was the supreme form of love and the highest capacity. And so Jesus says to him, Peter, do you love me supremely? It's almost as if he's saying, do you have super duper love for me? Do you have the highest form of love that a person could have, the kind of love that God really has for us? He says, do you have a great love for me, a superior love for me? And notice he adds then as well, do you love me? This is interesting, more than these, he says. Do you love me more than these? Question is, what does these refer to? When Jesus said, do you love me more than these? What is he referring to? Well, 
I don't think we can be 100% certain, but given the biblical context, I think we can draw a pretty good conclusion what he might have been referring to. For example, remember Jesus had just waited for them as they came back in from being out fishing on their boats. They had caught a lot of fish. So it could be a reference as they're now eating the meal and they're eating some of the fish that were just caught through their expedition out on the boats that Jesus was referencing that when he's basically saying, Simon, do you love me more than these? Maybe he's referring to the boats and the nets and the idea saying, Peter, uh, do you love me more than your occupation? Do you love me more than this work that you've committed yourself to? Do you, do you love me more than that work? Or it could be that he's saying, Peter, do, do you love me more than the, the, the lifestyle of being a fisherman? These guys love to be out on the water. And perhaps he's saying, do you love me more than these things, than this lifestyle of being on the water that you've grown so accustomed to? Or maybe even a reference to the fish themselves. And the idea of the fish themselves represented a very good income because they made a pretty good catch. And so it was a, a, a pretty uh, big thing to, in a sense, have that financial stability. And perhaps Jesus is saying, do you love me more than the financial stability? Do you? Do you love me even more than that? Or it could be that Jesus is making a reference when he says these to the other disciples in comparison to Peter himself. And here's what I mean by that. It could mean that Jesus is saying, Peter, do you love me more than than these disciples do? Do you love me more than these? Is that really true, Peter? Is it true? Could you say that you have a greater love for me than the rest of these disciples? I think that's probably the greater possibility considering the whole of the biblical narrative. Because remember what led to Peter's failure and denial. It was an unhealthy self-confidence in his own sense of superior love and devotion and commitment to Jesus. Remember what? in comparison to all these other disciples. You remember the conversation? Jesus said to him, Matthew 26, to all the disciples, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it's written, I'll strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. What was Peter saying? The rest of these may stumble but lord I, I mean i would you must not know me as well as you think you do and the idea was he had a greater level of commitment than these other disciples perhaps jesus is now asking him so peter what have you learned what have you learned through these experiences peter do you really love me more than these other disciples do as you once thought and perhaps it was an opportunity after peter had been humbled by his own spiritual failure before the lord and others Jesus kind of asked this question gently to manifest the lesson that was very helpful because, listen, it is never wise, nor is it ever healthy to have a, a perspective that we are more spiritual than what we truly are. And certainly never healthy to have a perspective that we are more superior in our spirituality than someone else around us. That somehow more than these people or that family or this person. And that's a path to personal failure and showing we need a lesson in humility. When our heart begins to get like that in its condition. Be honest before the Lord today. What have your attitudes been recently? Be honest sincerely. 
Have you ever caught yourself maybe becoming a little bit self-confident and now your spiritual maturity and status as if somehow it's on autopilot because you've got some roots now. And so you're okay. Not like these others and kind of where they seem to be. Or be honest at times in our sinfulness. Sometimes do you ever find yourself with an attitude or a thought crossing your mind or the way that you behave maybe that indicates that in some ways you're a little more spiritual than these people are? Or than that family is because maybe you do things this way and they do things that way or their marriage operates this way or they raise their kids that way so I'm certainly more spiritual than these. And we have to be careful because we can very subtly begin to have these mindsets that because we have this you know, set of disciplines in our Christian life or we attend this many meetings and they only attend that many meetings. or I mean, We have all these dynamics for what we want to quantify of what's spiritual and we really have to guard our hearts. The Bible tells us 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. The Bible tells us in Romans 12, 3, For I say through the grace given to me to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Well, Peter's response shows he's developed humility through the failure process because as he answers Jesus, he just says, Yes, Lord, I know you know that I love you. But what the English kind of doesn't afford to us here and misses is Peter actually uses a different of the Greek words when he says, yes, you know that I love you. He doesn't use the same term agapeo, yes, Lord, I love you supremely. He uses the term phileo, changes the term, and the word phileo is a term that means to have a strong affection or a fondness for a person. It refers to a brotherly friendship type of love. And so basically what happens is Jesus says to him, Peter, do you have superior supreme love for me? Do you have a super duper love for me? And he says, Lord, you know that I have a strong affection for you. Lord, you know that I'm very fond of you. And he lowers in humility. He would not say that he had agapeo, supreme love for Jesus, because he probably felt his actions had revealed that he clearly didn't yet. And so he recognizes there's a need to still grow in his love for the Lord. So he says, Lord, you know the truth. You know that I'm very fond of you. You know that I have a great affection for you. And he demonstrates his humility and sincerity before the Lord and others. This kind of self-promotion desire that kind of struggled in, inside of Peter of wanting to be recognized and kind of validated as the super spiritual one among the bunch. It seems that's kind of been knocked out of his sails now, you notice. He's not as concerned about this anymore as a result of his failure. And again, th this isn't Peter pretending to be humble. And sometimes, sadly, we can even do that. And it's so foolish because Jesus knows the difference anyway. It's not Peter pretending to be humble. This is Peter having failed and fallen on his face. And he's experienced some brokenness now. And the Lord's knocked some wind out of his sails. And we all need that at times in all of our lives. That's why failure is not always a bad thing. Sometimes we truly do win by losing once in a while. And there can be benefit to this in all of our lives to bring humility, to bring a humble, meek spirit of servanthood. And after he humbles himself before the Lord, we see here, what does Jesus do? Jesus lifts him up. He lifts him up and he now reinstates him 
and restores him back into service publicly before the others. James 4 says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. We don't have to lift ourselves up. That was Peter's problem. In fact, Peter himself writes in 1 Peter 5, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. So here we see Peter's public restoration now into Christian service and more even for Peter what became pastoral ministry. And we see here the instruction given of what his service was to entail or involve. Look at it with me. Focus is really on two main objectives of what he was to be doing. Feeding and tending the sheep. Feeding and tending God's flock. His focus was to be on those two things. Nourishing the flock and caring for and watching over the flock. What did Jesus refer to himself back in John chapter 10 as? The good shepherd. And he said, I'm the good shepherd, and he referred to his followers as my sheep. He says here in these verses, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. And again, so important we realize, the sheep belong to Jesus. He's the shepherd. The sheep don't belong to any one church. The sheep don't belong to the pastor. The sheep don't belong to any... The sheep belong to Jesus. He said, they're my sheep. Why? Because they're blood bought. He bought them with his blood. Therefore, he has ownership over the sheep, primary stewardship over the sheep. And that denotes how precious and important the sheep are to Jesus and why he wants them treated and served properly. Treated well and cared for well in the same way that he would personally. And as the Lord's servants, we're given the privilege to serve other sheep. We're given the opportunity in ministry and Christian service to be under shepherds under the supervision of Jesus, like he mentions here in verse 15, to serve the young lambs, which may be something along the lines of serving and feeding and caring for the young lambs, our children in our home, and raising them in the ways of the Lord, these young, tender lambs. And that we'd see that as a, a, a huge, crucial, vital ministry, more important than any accomplishment on this earth that we would say these are lambs Lord these are tender little lambs that you've given to my care to raise in a way in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord and Lord this is important this is serious there's nothing more important than this and that we have the privilege to feed and, and care for the little lambs in children's ministry and in outreach things, when we care for children, to take care of them and to serve the sheep in general and various forms of Christian service and for some to serve God's flock, perhaps even in pastoral ministry and roles of spiritual leadership. Peter ultimately would say to the elders, shepherd the flock of God who's among you, serving as overseers. And really, you could boil down Jesus' instruction to Peter for his Christian service or more pastoral ministry to two real things. His first responsibility is mentioned in verse 15 and again then in verse 17, which, as I said, is to nourish the Lord's sheep. He says two times, feed my lambs and then again, feed my sheep, perhaps indicating that whether they are young or old in age or young spiritually or old spiritually, whether lambs or sheep, no matter what the age, it's still very important that they be well-fed spiritually. That they be fed and nourished. And the way the Lord's sheep are well fed 
is through a good and consistent diet of the word of God being supplied to them. That is the emphasis being upon the preaching and teaching and the explaining and the application of the spiritual food God's given to us, which is his word to nourish our souls. That is the most important thing to properly and adequately feed the people of God to nourish the flock, to feed the sheep so they can be healthy and strong and stable and safe. And so they can operate the way that God wants them to and develop and grow and function in the best manner. That is an important spiritual work of ministry that cannot be neglected in whatever form of Christian service. This is one of the two pillars of Christian service, nourishing people spiritually. Listen, I don't know about you, but I can say, and I've been on the other side of the pulpit, I can't live off of just cotton candy. You give me cotton candy on Sunday, I ain't going to make it past Monday morning at 9 a.m. or I'll be a spiritual shipwreck. I need food for my soul. I need to be nourished and strengthened. It's a hard world. And it's not easy being faithful to Jesus. And to have our soul nourished and fed is such an important thing to be healthy and to be the productive individuals in serving the Lord God wants us to be. So he was to nourish and feed the sheep. But secondly, also we see in verse 16 that he was also to care for, watch over the Lord's sheep. He says to him as well, another responsibility, Peter, is tend my sheep. Now that would imply beyond supplying food for nourishment spiritually, that would just simply relate to giving attention to practical care, to the well-being of the sheep. In just ongoing experiences, the idea of tending implies providing leadership and direction, guiding them in the way they should go. It involves being aware of the condition of the sheep, knowing how they're doing, what's going on in their lives, paying attention to that, figuring out maybe if there's something that they have need of, a way to serve them in some practical way or to support them through hardship or if they're struggling to care for them, to be sensitive, to give them attention, to give them time, to listen to them or serve them in some way, to protect them from what's dangerous, whether it's their own temperament to be rebellious and wander off or whether it's perhaps some wolf that may be trying to take advantage of them. Tending the sheep involved correcting them at times redirecting them when they got off track and bringing them back to where they needed to be, taking time to give them attention, to just tend to their personal situations, to care for them and love them in practical ways. And here's why that's important. Because well-fed but neglected sheep are just fattened up for the slaughter. You need both. They need to be well-fed, but they also need to be tended and taken care of. People need to be taught well, yes, absolutely. The part of the church movement that we are part of is, I think, very serious about pulpit ministry and about teaching the Word of God, and that is vital and that is important. But people also need something beyond being talked to. They need to be tended and cared for and served in personal ways. And let me just say this, if you have a harder aspiration for ministry, if all you want to do is stand up before people and speak to them, but you have no genuine interest in serving people, please go be a performer, but don't go into the ministry. 
if you love talking to people, that's great. But if that's all you want to do is talk to people and you don't want to tend to people and care for people and serve people, there are lots of opportunities. Go perform somewhere. Find a, a, an opening in Hollywood. But don't do a disservice to the people of God by basically just wanting to be something that has a platform to speak. It says, Peter, feed my sheep and tend my sheep. And Peter did this faithfully. And let me say this. Jesus, it shows here, still had plans to use Peter, what? Despite his failure. Is that not encouraging? Despite his failure, his mistakes in his past, Jesus still wanted to use Peter. His past mistakes, once learned from, listen, did not prohibit and it did not ruin the potential or opportunity for Peter to still be useful for the Lord. You may have past failures. Maybe you've blown it. Maybe you've made some mistakes, have some regrets. You've learned some things. Listen, your past failures, I don't care what they are, from Jesus' heart, they don't prohibit you from having an opportunity to be useful for the Lord still. They don't ruin your ability to still be useful for the Lord. Do you know why? It's called grace. It's called grace. The Bible is filled with examples of people who once failed and yet God restored and used. And that's an important lesson that we have to come to grips with for ourselves. Because if you haven't tripped yet, soon you're going to join the club. And once you have tripped, it's important to realize, listen, you don't have to say, I've fallen and I can't get up. No, you can fall, get up. Jesus will help you up. Admit you've fallen and ask the Lord to help you get up. And when others around you fall, have a heart towards them that Jesus does. You know, after a time of great failure, which was going to bring consequences for a time, that's when Jeremiah 29:11 was spoken, where the Lord said this, we know it. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. We love that verse. It's on placards. It's in Christian bookstores. A lot of people don't realize the context was, you have failed miserably, because that's what the Jews had just done. And you're going to experience 70 years of painful consequences attached to your failure. There was consequences attached, bad decisions, painful consequences. But it's bad decision, painful consequence. The Lord said, but I know the thoughts I'm thinking towards you. They're not of harm or of evil. I'm already thinking about your future. And the hope I have for you down the road. You know, Jesus said to Peter himself, in light of his own failure, Peter, you're going to fail. But he says, but when you have returned, strengthen your brethren. Before Peter even failed, he said, Peter, I know you're going to come back. And when you return to me, use that as a lesson and an incentive to strengthen others around you who have failed perhaps as well. well after going through the process of question, Two times in verse 17, Jesus does it a third time. He says to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter, look what it says, was grieved because Jesus said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus again reiterated, feed my sheep. Notice, even as Peter failed the Lord, how many times? Oh, I'm doing a bad job teaching the class. How many? Okay, I feel a little better now. <laughs> he failed the Lord three times. And what does Jesus do? He gives him three opportunities to express his love. 
He gives him three opportunities to hear himself commissioned again for ministry. Even as Peter failed the Lord publicly and the pain and shame attached to that, Jesus now restores him publicly and puts him back into usefulness publicly. And the grace of the Lord of how he works to restore. Again, the English language here, sadly, in this text anyway, kind of holds back the full force of the conversation because here's what happens. Two times, as we said, Jesus says, Peter, do you agapeo me? Do you have a super superior love for me? And twice Jesus says, as he has asked that, Peter says, Lord, you know I phileo you. You know I'm very fond of you. You know I have a strong affection for you. And then it tells us here in verse 17, Jesus asks him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? But this time, guess what Jesus does? You don't see it in the English. He changes the word and he uses his Peter's lower form of love and uses the word phileo. And he comes down to where Peter's at. And this time, the third time, Jesus doesn't say to him, Peter, do you have superior love for me? He says, Simon, son of Jonah, do you phileo me? Do you at least have a strong affection for me? Do you at least have a, a fondness for me? And it tells us upon hearing what Jesus had just done, Peter, it says, was grieved. He was heartbroken because I think his heart just sank in humility as Jesus lowered the request to accommodate where Peter was at at that point. And he came down and met Peter where he was at in his life. And he's grieved that Jesus had to do this when he heard Jesus say this, his heart sank. But look at his response. It shows his genuine brokenness and genuine humility after his failure. He says, Lord, and this time he says, Lord, you know, look at it there, all things. Lord, you know all things. I think what's happening here is this. He's saying, Lord, you know me better than I know myself. Lord, you know me completely. You know, apparently, I only have a fondness for you and that I need to grow more. And this was, I think, great demonstration of what had happened in Peter's life because, again, as I said earlier, what did Peter indicate and insinuate the first time he argued with Jesus about failure? He basically was indicating that Jesus didn't know him well enough, right? When he rebuked the Lord for saying they were all going to fail, his underlying attitude in the argument was, Lord, you must not know me. They're all going to fail you. I mean, John and Matthew, I mean, as a tax collector, he's always been a sellout. But Lord, you must not know me. I'm Peter. Lord, it's almost as if he was someone insulted. Clearly, you don't know how committed I am. Clearly, you don't know how much I love you. And it's almost as if he was insinuating before the Lord didn't know him. And now look what he says, Lord, you know all things. In fact, I sense that Peter perhaps may even hear it kind of be saying, Lord, you know whether I'm even right to say I have a strong affection for you. Lord, you know all things. Lord, you know whether or not I even have a, 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 a strong fondness for you. And again, Peter had learned this truth, upholding this desired image of being spiritual is never helpful if you're not listening to the Lord and what he's trying to say to you. And Peter shows a vast difference now. He humbly admits, Lord, you know all things. Apparently, as I said, he's not interested anymore in maintaining an image of spirituality. What's Peter's primary concern? I just want to be right with you, Lord. I just want to be in right relationship with you. And Lord, it doesn't grieve me if people don't think I'm spiritual. Lord, it grieves me 
if my heart is not where I wish it was before you. It grieves me, Lord, that I may break your heart in some way. And the humility in his spirit here is a condition of the example of what the Lord really wants. Because in Psalm 51, when David failed the Lord in his sin with Bathsheba, as he's praying his prayer of repentance before the Lord, David said this, You don't desire sacrifice or else I would give it, or delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do you see what David learned? Because Peter manifests it here for us. David said, Lord, I failed miserably. And there was no sacrifice for adultery or for murder. Those were capital punishment. He should have been killed. There was no legitimate sacrifice. And so when David's pouring out his heart in confession and humble repentance before the Lord and is broken, he says, Lord, you're not looking for some sacrifice. But he says, Lord, what you want is a broken heart, a contrite spirit, a humbled spirit. He says, these, these are the sacrifices you're looking for when we can humble ourselves and say, Lord, I blew it. No excuses. I failed, Lord, and I am sorry for what... And, and he says, that's what the Lord's after. And this is what Peter's manifesting now. He's grieved at where Jesus saw him at in his life. But again, despite Jesus coming down to meet Peter in his weakness, notice Jesus doesn't change his mind about using him to serve. He still says there, Peter, I know you only have a fond affection for me, but feed my sheep anyway. Still serve me, still... Allow yourself to be used by me. That shows us here, Peter does, that we do not have to meet some standard of spiritual perfection in order to be useful for the Lord. Listen, we're never going to hit spiritual perfection until we're in the presence of the perfect one anyway. We don't have to meet some standard of spiritual perfection to really begin to be useful. The Lord delights to work through imperfect people in spite of all of our present shortcomings. He delights to show himself strong through weak people to accomplish things despite where we fall short. We all, I assure you, in this room have past failures and regrets in our lives. But we all also know the Bible says if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things become new. And maybe you're here this morning and like myself, you still have some real areas where you realize you need to grow and develop personally. It does not mean you need to sit in the spiritual dugout and watch everybody else serving. My encouragement instead is, listen, exercise faith, keep going, get up to the plate, swing the bat again. Oh, but but I struck out a bunch of times. So what? So did Babe Ruth. Learn. Grow from it. Get up to the plate. One of my favorite things to encourage other pastors because it's the way I've always counseled myself all these years when they feel like they've blown it in a message. I say, so what? You struck out. Swing the bat again. Swing the bat again. What do you have to lose? Swing the bat again. There's nothing to be lost in that. So what if you struck out a bunch of times? Keep swinging. In fact, somewhat, it's healthy to realize how flawed and weak we are because that's what helps us stay dependent and humble before the Lord. To realize, 1 Corinthians 1, that he uses weak things and foolish things and despised things so that no flesh glories in his presence. 2 Corinthians says that none of us are sufficient to do these things ourselves. None of us. But God makes us sufficient. 
Oh, I'm not sufficient to do this. I'm not sufficient to be the husband God wants me to be. I'm not sufficient to be the wife God wants me to be. I'm not sufficient to be the parent God. Right! But God can make you sufficient. There's a sufficiency that God can give you by His Spirit if you offer Him availability. Well, look at this closing prophecy Jesus gives to Peter here in verse 18. He says, Peter, most assuredly I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, a reference to crucifixion, and another will guard you and carry you where you do not wish. And this Jesus spoke, the Bible tells us, signifying by what death Peter would glorify God. So Jesus gives to Peter another prophecy for his future. This happens to Peter on occasion. But please note, this time it's not a warning about Peter failing in the future, as the last prophecy was. Now it's a prophecy of the exact opposite, of how faithful Peter was going to be in the future, so much so that he actually would be faithful unto death to glorify the Lord. In verse 18, Jesus says, Peter, when you were younger, you were independent. You were kind of self-sufficient and you sort of lived for yourself and went where you walked and, and did what you wished. He says, but now that you're old, Peter, something different's going to happen in your life. Because Peter had met the Lord and he'd become a humbled man and he was submitted to Jesus now. He was a different person. And he was overwhelmed with the gratitude of Jesus and the love of Jesus and patience of Jesus. So he was going to finish his days, according to Jesus' words, very faithful. He says, Peter, in the end, you're going to be led by another where you don't want to go and you're going to stretch out your hands. As I said, a reference to crucifixion. And that was signifying how you would die glorifying God. And we know from history, Peter was executed in Rome for being faithful to Jesus. And what we know from church history, again, if it's true, is that as he was led by another to somewhere he did not want to go, an execution site, that as Peter's hands were being stretched out in death, that Peter's last words supposedly were, please crucify me upside down. I am not worthy to die in the same manner as my Lord. Now let me say this. Talk about a total reversal of a man. Talk about a total reversal from denying the Lord to dying for the Lord. Don't tell me Jesus can't do something with a failure. Jesus can do incredible things with a failure. Jesus did something wonderful. He can turn a life around and make a person quite faithful. So don't sell out on people. And don't sell out on yourself. Know the grace and the power of the Lord is wonderful. Perhaps today you failed and it's a constant stumbling block for you. Here's my word from the Lord. So what? So what? So you failed like everyone else as I exhort you determined to live faithful to the Lord the rest of your days. Learn from what happened. Let it inspire you to live well in the remaining time you have and consider this. In a race, you can have a really bad start or you can have a good start and halfway through the race, you fall flat on your face. But either way, you can have a bad start or fall down in the middle of the race and you can still finish well. So finish well. Finish well. 
There's forgiveness. Jesus loves you. His love is above all. Receive his forgiveness. Receive his grace. Let that motivate you despite your failures to keep following the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you.